you're new with us, we're working our way through 1 Corinthians. This is week two. It's a great week for you to jump in with us. Uh, we're going to pray together before we take a close look at verses 10 to 17 uh, this morning. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that what we just sung is true, that we will feast and weep no more. And that's true, we know, because of the Bible. We thank you for revealing to us the good news. And we pray that as we look at this portion of your word today, <clears throat> that your truth would land on soft hearts and that it would bear much fruit in our lives. So we pray that you come and work that which is pleasing in your sight, in our hearts, for your glory in Jesus' good name. Amen. The cult of personality. Not the old group, but the idea. The cult of personality is very much alive in today's culture. It's defined by the Oxford Dictionary as a situation in which people are encouraged to, ex to show extreme enthusiasm and love for a famous person. Just take sports, for example. The two dominant storylines in football this year have been around pop singer Taylor Swift and former player Deion Sanders. Neither of them are actually playing football right now. In the NFL, it has been all about Taylor Swift's relationship with Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. The camera continues to show her in the stands, watching and cheering. And when the Chiefs played the Jets on Sunday night, uh, it soared in viewership thanks to the Taylor Swift effect. It was the most watched football game since the Super Bowl. She's not even playing. She's not coaching. She's not announcing. She's simply there. And in college football, the major storyline has been about primetime, Deion Sanders. People have stayed awake on the East Coast till 3 in the morning to watch, of all teams, the Colorado Buffaloes. According to Sports Media Watch, more people watch Colorado's blowout loss to Oregon than uh, people who watch the nail-biter game between Ohio State and Notre Dame. Two massive fan bases, Ohio State and Notre Dame, and yet more people watch Colorado versus Oregon. It's the power of star power, the cult of personality. People like their stars. And this was a major aspect of the culture in Corinth. They liked their stars. And this had made its way into the church. And Paul has to deal with the cult of personality here. And he reminds the Corinthians of this simple truth that Jesus Christ is the only superstar. And that's my main point today. And if we're going to be fixated on someone, let it be Jesus Christ. Now, as mentioned last week, Paul would have to deal with a lot of problems in this letter. Sexual immorality, litigation, food sacrifice to idols, pride in spiritual gifts, misuse of those gifts, questions of singleness and marriage, the lack of love, questions around the resurrection. He's got so many problems to deal with in this church. It reminds me of that great theological movie, Dumb and Dumber, where uh, in one scene they say, we got no food, we got no jobs, our pets' heads are falling off. I think Paul felt like that about the Corinthians. What else could go wrong with this bunch? And he has to hit these issues directly through the letter, but a common thread with each of these issues is this issue of division, as they were dividing over all of these sorts of things. And here in these opening chapters, it's division over leaders, spiritual leaders. And so Paul has a plea for unity here around Christ, and this plea really extends up until chapter, at the end of chapter 4. 
Off and on, he goes back and forth to this issue of being divided over one's spiritual leaders. It seems that they were uh, drawn to certain leaders based on their, their style of ministry or their uh, personality. It doesn't seem that they're advocating different doctrines per se, but that there was a division over who was their favorite and who baptized them became a matter of great importance to them. And so it's a good word for us about the need for unity, but not just any old unity, a unity that exalts Jesus Christ. Unity is emphasized throughout Scripture, and disunity is often described as, as being uh, very problematic. For example, in Proverbs chapter 6, dealing with the so-called deadly sins, one of those sins is one who sows discord among the brothers. The terrible sin. Unity was certainly important to the Lord Jesus right prior to the cross in John 17. He was praying, and he prays for, among other things, unity. When he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And here's the purpose. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity is not only important, and not only important for the health of the church, but also for our witness to the outside world. It's extolled in many places in the scriptures. One of those lovely places is Psalm 133, where the psalmist in that short psalm says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. There's a goodness to unity. So you think back to Genesis 1, after God creates everything, he says it was good, as if to say this is how it was meant to be. And when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, that's how it's meant to be. And then he gives the psalmist two, those two word pictures, one from geography and one from religious ceremony. Regarding the, the latter, he says, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. As a man who appreciates a good beard oil, I, I appreciate this verse, right? But this is like holy priest, priestly oil. It's aromatic. It, it is running down on his robes. It's conveying a spirit of joy that exists when unity is present. It's pervasive, just like this, this, the, the aroma would have been in that moment. And then from the realm of geography, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Hermon was that majestic mountain, snow-covered mountain that uh, causes dew, the dew to, to nourish the whole region, feeds into the Jordan River. And he says unity is like that. It's nourishing. It's life-giving. It's refreshing. And so Jesus prays for unity. The scriptures throughout uh, extol the importance of unity. And here Paul teaches some on it. And what I would like for us to do is look at it in three parts. <clears throat> First thing Paul does in verses 10 and 11 is talk about the threefold, this threefold plea to be united. And then he includes the four parties that were present in Corinth. And then finally he offers the one solution. So the threefold plea, the four parties, the one solution. Now first, he says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. <clears throat> Notice that Paul is making his appeal immediately. Sometimes he delays his appeal in his letters, but here Paul, uh, it leads the way in 1 Corinthians. It's really matter to the Apostle Paul. In uh, Philippians, he says to the, to the church, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Unity brought Paul great joy, but disunity grieved the Apostle Paul as it grieves the Lord Jesus. And his appeal comes with the authority, you see it there, of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is the name that matters. And then he gives this threefold uh, plea with a positive, a negative, and a positive. Positive first, that you all agree. Literally, that you say the same thing. <clears throat> As he says in Philippians 4.2, he encourages Yodi and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And it doesn't mean you have to agree on everything without exception. The church will always have minor disagreements about particular things. And there are times to disagree uh, over major doctrines, for example. Paul would never advocate a unity at the expense of truth. The context always restricts our reading. What does he mean by that you all agree? And as we read along, we simply see that, that he's talking about holding these rival opinions in the church of extolling one teacher over another teacher. It's also worldly, as he'll say later in the letter. It's also fleshly. And we, we know how this works. This is a world of rivalries in which we live. Coke versus Pepsi, the Chick-fil-A sandwich or the Popeye's chicken sandwich, uh, the Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks, Tupac or Biggie, Barbie or Oppenheimer. We, we love to <laughs> debate, you right? Who, 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 who's the greatest in these moments? And sometimes you see uh, flags outside of people's homes where the wife and the husband disagree on football teams like an Alabama and Auburn fan, and it says house divided. And you can hang that over the Corinthian church, unfortunately. It was a church family divided. And these factions we're hurting the health of the church, damaging the witness of the church. And Paul is hinting at the sloganeering, I follow this one or that one, when he says that you all agree. That is that you need to agree that this cult of personality is foolish. And you need to agree to focus on Jesus Christ. He is the only superstar. This is what we unite around. We were not, we're not unite around the gospel. So he says that first, that you all agree. And then he says that there be no divisions. The word divisions comes from the word schismata, which is where we get the word schism from. That there be no tear or crack or split. Later he uses the same word when he talks about the Lord's Supper, that they were divided at the Lord's Supper between the haves and the have-nots. Or in chapter 12, when he's using the body of Christ metaphor, he says in 12.25, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Where does all this come from? If you look over in chapter 3, Paul ties it to jealousy that is in the hearts of those in Corinth when he says in chapter 3, verse 3, For you are still of the flesh, for while, why is there, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not in the flesh, behaving in only a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another one says, I follow Apollos. Are you not be, being merely human? Jealousy was apparently widespread in the church in Corinth. And again, as I said last week, this was part of the culture of Corinth. It was a very competitive culture. It was a very ambitious culture. And whenever there is competitiveness, it's hard to cheer one another on. It's hard to appreciate the gifts of others. Much easier to sort of divide and criticize and attack rather than listening and appreciating the gifts of other people. It comes from jealousy. Paul has to rebuke them for a lack of love. They don't lack competitiveness, they lack love. So that jealousy often creates division. It's a good word for us. In a highly gifted church like Corinth, one of the sins they had to be mindful of, be aware of, 
was envy, jealousy. It can tear a gifted church apart. Then he says, the final way he says it, positively, that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. That phrase, united, is a word that speaks of restoring something. And that's the idea. They need it to be restored. It was a word that was used elsewhere to, about mending nets, of repairing broken nets. <clears throat> and because there were factions, there, was a, a spl- there were splits off of the church, he wants them to be united, of the same mind, of the same judgment. Paul mentions where he gets some of this report from, verse 11, from Chloe's people. Oh, Chloe. She has reported that there's actually quarreling among you, my brothers. There are many great texts about quarreling, not kind of important texts. One of them is James 4, 1 to 2, which also sort of talks about what's underneath the fighting. When it says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it is not the source of your pleasures that you wage war in your members, that is in your, your heart, your body. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Why is it that you fight and quarrel? It's because you want something someone else has. Or you're envious, right? So, as David Pallison put it well, cravings underlie conflicts. Cravings. Wanting something that someone else has or that you want. And so, we often, it all, often expresses itself in, in some sort of argument or division. Healthy churches are united churches. And this is sort of the first big takeaway in the book of Corinthians for us. Paul's going to talk about this a lot. I don't know if you've ever met someone who's been in a very difficult relationship with a person. It begins to take effect on their physical body. You can just sort of see the, the, how that's weighed on them. And, and the same is true in the body of Christ. Constant conflict and fighting and quarreling and dividing makes the, the, the body of Christ unhealthy. And Paul addresses it here, urges them to agree to stop dividing and be of the same mind. So that's the, 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 the threefold plea to unity. Secondly, there are the four parties that Paul mentions. As he gets specific with these quarrels, he says uh, that there are party disputes. As some are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ, which is not used positively, but negatively here in this context, that those who are basically saying, I don't need a leader, I follow Christ. We'll get to that in a second. You'll notice here how Paul highlights their watchwords, that there were cliques within the congregation. I mentioned this last week, but uh, uh, something that was very common in Corinth was you would attach yourself to traveling philosophers. You would identify yourself with following that particular leader, that particular philosopher, and that seems to have been going on now in Corinth as they were attaching themselves to particular individuals. And I'm sure these individuals would have been appalled that their names were being used this way. There was no doctrinal disagreement between Apollos and Peter and Paul. But it came from the people. They were lionizing certain individuals as their hero. Mainly based, it seems, on their style or their style of leadership or their preaching as they valued eloquence. Over in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says this about this debate. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, 
that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He's like, we're on the same team. Let's not be, you know, uh, forming these sort of rival groups. Interestingly, Clement of Rome, who wrote around 95 AD, talks about the same cliques and divisions in Corinth some 40 years after this letter. Still seem to be going on. Now remember that the Corinthians are those who prided themselves in being very spiritual. And Paul says in, on this matter of division that nothing could be more worldly or fleshly than dividing over your particular leaders. Notice how he says it over in chapter 3, verse 5. I love this little paragraph when he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Answer, servants. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Then he says, I planted, Apollos watered, which is actually the way it worked in history. Paul planted the church, Apollos followed Paul there. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, (laughs) but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We're servants, Paul says. We're not superstars. We can't convert anyone. Only God gives the growth. So we have to be mindful of that. It's very easy because of our own style and personality that we naturally gravitate to people who have a a similar style or personality, that sort of thing, to us. And it's certainly not wrong to commend leaders and to thank leaders, whether they be pastors or small group leaders or just another brother or sister in Christ who's helping you along uh, in the faith. That's not the point. We should honor those to whom honor is due. But we should not exalt Christian leaders. We only exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. So you might think about how this was was going on in in Corinth. They could view Paul sort of as this spiritual giant. Apollos was like the sophisticated, brilliant, smooth as butter speaker. Peter was very serious, very Jewish in background. And then the I follow Christ is the smug crowd. Andrew Wilson labels them as this, the spiritual the sophisticated, the serious, the smug. And there's a tendency, based upon your own proclivities, to want to attach yourself to one of those. So Paul plants the church. He's writing the letter. I'm sure people in Corinth were saying, no one will ever compare to that guy. They remember him with awe. It's very hard today for pastors to succeed, uh, succeed very beloved pastors because the previous pastor's memory still lives on so powerfully. It's, it's all so very, very uh, relevant, this text. Or Apollos, Alexandrian Jew, who became a very eloquent teacher. He was known for his oratory, his ability to refute the Jews in public. And I'm sure as, as some saw Apollos after seeing Paul, they said, oh, he's not like that old man. This guy's smooth. We like Apollos. Who needs Paul? He can shut up. And then you've got Cephas, who is Peter. It seems he visited Corinth as well. Paul mentions Peter and his wife in uh, chapter 9, verse 5. He almost certainly represented the Jewish believers in Corinth. And later, as these legalistic tendencies are brought up, like should we eat meat sacrificed to idols, it was probably, if there was a group, that group was the group speaking up. And you could hear them saying something like, you know, Paul gives Christians way too much freedom. Peter's got it right. We need to be more rigid. And you can imagine after they preached what it was like, 
Some love Peter's preaching. Some begin to critique. You see, he has no education, they would say. He had five split infinitives in that opening paragraph. He preached 52 minutes. No one's ever preached that long since Paul and Eutychus fell out the window. What a dreadful Galilean accent Peter has. The most curious slogan is, I follow Christ. As you first read this, you're like, well, that's the correct answer. It is the correct answer, but that's probably not what Paul had in mind. You notice how he lumps it with the other three slogans, and he doesn't back it up and say, well, group four has it right. (laughs) Uh, The pretty pretty standard interpretation is that this is likely a group that wants to reject leadership altogether. As you would have one group saying, I'm about Peter, I'm about Paul, I'm about Paulus, and, every, and the others are saying, I, we, don't need any of, we don't need a leader at all. Uh, the Lord speaks directly to me. And it creates a sort of smugness in one's spirituality. So we need to be on guard against these divisive tendencies. It feels a little bit like meddling, but that's what Paul's doing here, doesn't it? that it could be the influence of a previous spiritual leader that you have that is preventing you from being taught in the present. That's so popular today. Or you may be drawn to the youthful, skilled speaker at the conference or online. Think about that. Paul didn't even have to deal with online preaching at this point. (laughs) How much more popular is this? How much more relevant is this? And that... That Apollos nature that you like prevents you from listening to faithful local leaders or those in your small group or just another faithful brother or sister. Or maybe you're like the Peter crowd and, and you, like, you like guys to be more strict. Or maybe you want to reject leadership altogether. What should we do? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us a very clear solution to the problem of division over leaders. And that is to focus on Jesus. It's a very simple but very liberating idea. The antidote to exalting people is exalt Jesus. Be thankful for for, for leaders, for evangelists, for pastors, for small group leaders, etc. But we exalt Jesus, and this is how Paul says it. He's very cheeky in the way he says it. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? (laughs) Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer is obviously no. You could replace that with your favorite preacher or spiritual leader. Were they crucified for you? Were you baptized into their name? No, of course not. Is Christ divided? We can't divide him into little pieces. Part of Jesus over here in this tribe, part of Jesus over here in this tribe. Now we are to be one in him. It's kind of like today when people talk about, I go to so-and-so's church. And I know what they mean, and sometimes it's helpful to kind of know that, but it's not so-and-so's church. It's Jesus' church, right? You were not baptized into the name of Paul. You were baptized into the name of Jesus. And that's where the real glory lies. Not in who baptized you, but in whom you were baptized. And this is how Paul says it when he says, I thank God that I baptized none except Crispus and, and uh, Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. <laughs> uh, Crispus was that former synagogue ruler. We mentioned him last week. Gaius was the one who was hosting Paul in Rome. And it's almost as if Stephanus elbows Paul and is like, you forgot me. In verse, verse 16, oh, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. 
He's at the end of the letter, 16-7, Stephanus. I wonder if he's just like, hey, dude, what about me? Um, but the point is that, that the, the real glory is that you've been baptized into Jesus. And this is very important as you hear of people today deconstructing their faith, uh, walking away from the faith, and a lot of it is leveraged against spiritual leaders who have fallen, which is horrible that that has happened. And you can certainly sympathize with those in that camp. But I just want to remind you that Jesus has never fallen. We don't follow a person. We follow Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or you have people who've been baptized by complete scoundrels, as it turns out, and they wonder if their baptism is real. And the answer is yes, because you're baptized into Jesus Christ. It's not about who baptized you, but about the one in whom you were baptized. All of it to get our attention on Jesus. So, yes, we respect and honor leaders. We should encourage them. We should pray for them. They're under great spiritual attack. We should thank them. We should do more and more of that, but we should not worship them. We do not place our faith in them. We place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives this great clarifying statement in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He says, here is my primary purpose, to preach the gospel. That's the main thing, this message of the gospel. The gospel means good news. It's a beautiful Greek word, euangelion. This was a, a word that was used outside of the Bible to speak about a messenger. If, if, say, the Greeks were fighting the Persians, the people back in the city-states would wait for the messenger to give the report. Did we win? Did we lose? Are we going to be slaves? Did we conquer? And the messenger, when he brought back good news that we have triumphed, that was an euangelion. That was good news. And we have the best news. Jesus Christ has triumphed in our place. We aren't slaves. We are free. Christ has triumphed in our place. The, the ultimate battle is over. The greatest problem solved. That's what we've been sent out into this world to proclaim. He is the only superstar. And so Paul says, I wasn't sent to baptize. He's not demeaning baptism. He's simply talking about how heralding the gospel is his primary calling. And then he speaks there of emptying it of its power. That is, if someone gave Paul or another leader credit for their salvation, it would diminish the power of the gospel. The power is not in the messenger. We can be thankful for the messenger. The power is in the message. The message of the gospel does what we cannot do. It frees us from sin, gives us right standing with God, gives us eternal life. The power is in that, in that message. In fact, I love how in, throughout the book of Acts it says that the word of God increased and multiplied or the word of the Lord prevailed mightily. That's what's stated, for example, in Acts 19. As Paul ministered in that pagan city, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It doesn't say that Paul prevailed mightily. It's that the message prevailed mightily. Thank God for the messengers, but, but Paul's dead. God buries the messengers, but we're still here 2,000 years later because the message keeps going. We are irreplaceable, but Jesus is not. The gospel is not. And then finally, he goes into sort of his manner of proclamation, as, as he will get into more next week as we look at chapter 118 to 25, hopefully where he says that he doesn't come with showy rhetoric, with eloquent wisdom, which they really, really loved uh, in Corinth. And for this particular purpose, so that he's not making Christ 
cross useless, or as he says in chapter 2, verse 5, so that people's faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on the power of God. So church, it's a very simple takeaway for us. We must never lose sight of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our faith is not in a human being. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we have salvation. He is the basis for our unity, and he's the subject of our proclamation. In Philippians 2, Paul gives a very similar teaching to the Philippians regarding their disunity, where he also puts their eyes on Jesus in chapter 2. And that's very instructive for us, that unity is not the result of talking about unity. It's the result of us getting our eyes on Jesus together. That creates the unity. The more we behold the glory of Jesus, the more we become like Jesus, and the more unified we become. And in the following passages, Paul is going to talk about the importance of the gospel, the message of the cross. But here the big point is quite simple. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Our unity is not based upon our race or our class or our interests. Our unity is in Jesus. So let's keep the focus on Jesus. He is the only superstar. He is the true and better Taylor Swift, the true and better Deion Sanders. There is only one superstar, and one day we will see him, and then we will know what real glory looks like. And as our eyes are on Jesus Christ, with people who are redeemed from every people, language, tribe, and nation, we will be one together because we have our unity set where it ought to be set in the glory of our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, work your word into our hearts. Keep us from worldly spirits dividing over things that we should not be dividing over. Help us to truly be thankful for those who help us make spiritual progress in this life, but help us to always be mindful that our faith does not rest in a person. It rests in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would fix our eyes on Jesus every day, the author and perfecter of our faith. And even now, as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of the unity that we have in the broken body and shed blood of our Savior. And we're thankful, and we pray that you would increase our gratitude for Christ, even now, as we continue in worship. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.